three times a year, every year, groups of pilgrims would set off. And their destination, three times a year, every year, was a city on a hill. Some of them traveled long distances. And they had a songbook to use on the journey. The songbook contained 15 songs. Songs of ascent. And the city that those pilgrims were ascending to was Jerusalem. And today, those 15 songs make up Psalms 120 to 134. If you want to open your Bible at Psalm 120, you'll see in your Bible that all of those 15 Psalms have the title, A Song of Ascents. And this evening, we're going to look at the first three songs of ascent, Psalms 120 to 122. And in the Church Bible, that's page 621. I'm going to read all three of them together. Psalm 120 begins, I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me. Save me, O Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. What will he do to you? And what more besides, O deceitful tongue? He will punish you with a warrior's sharp arrows, with burning coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I dwell in Meshech, that I live among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I am a man of peace, but when I speak, they are for war. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord, according to the statute given to Israel. There the thrones for judgment stand, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my brothers and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. This is God's word. The songs of ascent were probably not all written specially for the trip to Jerusalem, but they were all brought together eventually with that trip in mind. And as we look at these first three, we'll see that the first one is set far away from Jerusalem, and the third one is set in Jerusalem. So there's a progression. 
And if we ask, how do these songs connect with us? Well, the Bible describes the Christian life as a pilgrimage. And the Bible tells us that we are on our way to a new Jerusalem. So these pilgrim songs are for us too. This little book of songs opens by drawing us into an experience that every pilgrim knows about. It's the experience of being an outsider in a hostile environment. That's not clear at the very beginning of the psalm. Verse 1 says, I call on the Lord in my distress. We're not yet told what exactly the distress is. But verse 2 of Psalm 120 gives more detail. Save me, O Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. Maybe you've played one of those party games where you're taken out of the room where everybody else is, and then after a while you're brought back in, and you're supposed to figure out what's going on. You know everybody else is in on the secret, except you. And that can be pretty intimidating. And it's a whole lot worse if the same thing goes on when it's not a party game, maybe at school or at work. This first pilgrim song is talking about something similar. It's the feeling of being an outsider and knowing people want you to stay an outsider. In fact, it can make us want to lash out at the people who are keeping us out. And that's what the psalmist does in verses 3 to 4. He says that God's judgment will come on those deceitful tongues. But then the writer's thoughts move to focus on his own situation. And he says in verse 5, Woe to me that I dwell in Meshech, that I live among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I am a man of peace. But when I speak, they are for war. Meshech was to the far north of Israel, and Kedar was to the southeast. So clearly, this writer doesn't live in both places at once. In fact, he probably doesn't live in either place. This seems to be a general way of saying, Woe to me that I live among people who don't know or care for the living God. Meshech and Kedar stand for ungodly people wherever they are. And the writer feels like an outsider and an alien. He can never feel he belongs. And the reason is that he is focused on peace. And the people around him are all about war. And the word translated peace is shalom. And it means more than just an absence of war. In the Bible, it refers to a life centered around God. It includes the hope and the fellowship and the rest that come from a God-centered life. The writer is a man of shalom, peace, but he's surrounded by those who are for war. And in this context, that means they are hostile to people of shalom. Now we know what the writer meant when he spoke about lying lips and deceitful tongues. The reason he feels like an outsider and he's being treated as an outsider is that he is living a God-centered life. 
And when we live that way, we will be subject to a certain amount of hatred. We will, to some degree, be made to feel like an outsider. A pastor called Tim Keller says that normal godly living will bring you hatred without cause. In fact, the Apostle Paul said the same thing. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Paul even picks up on the deceit that's been mentioned here in our psalm. We can do our very best to be kind and gracious and sensitive and culturally relevant. And we should do all of that. But even with all that, the fact is, we are children of light in a world of darkness. And those who love darkness do not love light. So long as our lives are centered on shalom... So long as we're looking to God alone for our security and fulfillment and rest, then to some degree we are going to feel like outsiders in our community and school and workplace and maybe even in our families. These songs of ascent start with distress as the pilgrim looks around him. But then he looks up and he remembers that he is watched over by a sovereign protector. Look at the beginning of Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Some people have wondered if the psalmist is afraid of the hills that he sees here. And certainly robbers and bandits did use hills for their hideouts. But since these are songs for pilgrims on the way to Jerusalem, and since Jerusalem is a city on a hill, it's more likely we're to see these hills as a place of refuge. Our pilgrim lives among the hostile tents of Kedar, but he looks up to the hills of Jerusalem for help. And actually, having looked up that far, his eyes lift higher than the hills. He looks beyond the hills to the one who made the hills. He knows that his help doesn't ultimately come from a place. It comes from a person. And that person is the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And that title was taken up and used in the Apostles' Creed. How does it begin? We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And that simple fact should be so reassuring for us. Our God made everything there is. And all of it is under his sovereign control. No power in heaven or earth can prevent him from helping his people. Above the tents of Kedar and the men of war and their deceitful tongues stands the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. There are times in the Psalms 
where the psalmist talks to himself. For example, in Psalm 42, he says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? He goes on to say to his soul, Put your hope in God. Talking to ourselves is an important habit to work on. Not necessarily out loud. And not because we have no one else to talk to. It's an important habit because we forget the truth so easily. We get distracted from it so easily. We need to form the habit of preaching the truth to ourselves every day. And I think that's what the psalmist is doing here. He's been getting depressed looking around at the tents of Kedar. So he looks up above them. He remembers where his help comes from, and then he reminds himself what the Lord is like. He's preaching to his own soul. In verse 3, He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. I would guess that we've all seen someone in a film lose their footing on a rocky mountain path. Or maybe you've experienced that. But all of us can picture it in our minds. You're climbing on a narrow, steep path, and to one side of you there's a massive drop. One slip on a piece of loose gravel, and you're gone. And we all go through times when our lives feel like that. One slip, and it's all over, it seems like. That can be true in family life, in church life, in our career, with our health. It can all seem to be so precarious sometimes. But here we are told that He, the Lord, will not let your foot slip. It might feel to you and me like everything's balanced on a knife edge. But we have one watching over us. And he's not just anyone. He is the maker of heaven and earth. And he never dozes off to sleep on the job. He neither slumbers nor sleeps. One writer says, The creator God is forever the living God. The God of creation is the God of history. When it comes to our lives and our souls, we can be sure the Lord will keep our feet from slipping because he's always alert and he's always at work. And he is our God. Yes, he's the almighty creator and he's also your father. He's the one who knows every hair on your head. Or if it's more appropriate, the hairs that used to be in your head. So we know God will guide our steps. But what about the stuff going on around us? We all know that on the roads, we can be driving perfectly safely. And we can get broadsided by somebody else. Or even hit head on by somebody else. So what about all the threats around us? How does the Lord's care for us relate to those things? Well, look at verse 5. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. 
The sun is no danger to us here in the UK. Most of the time we hardly know it's there. But in the Middle East, it's a potential killer. If you get stranded in the sun without water or shelter for too long, you're dead. What about the moon? Well, if the days are hot in the desert, the nights can be deathly cold. And the nights can provide cover for bandits. In fact, the sun by day and the moon by night are a way of saying everything. The sun and moon and everything in between. Any danger, any time, God has it covered. Verse 7, the Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. We might respond to this by saying, but it just doesn't seem to be true. God's people get cancer. They lose their jobs. They get mugged and taken advantage of, just like everybody else. I think Psalm 23 helps us understand what's being said here. Psalm 23 says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, or it could be through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So the point is not that we'll never go through dark valleys. The point is that even when we do, God will be with us. And those dark valleys will do us no ultimate harm, however frightening and rocky they are while we're in them. In fact, we are to expect dark valleys, but we can face them because God is watching over us. The same point is being made here in Psalm 121. And verse 8 says, the Lord's care is both now and forevermore. It's as sure tomorrow as it was yesterday. I mentioned that the Apostles' Creed picks up on this psalm. And there's an old commentary on the Creed called the Heidelberg Catechism. And that catechism defines what it means to believe in God the Father Almighty maker of heaven and earth. It means to trust in him so completely that I have no doubt that he will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul. Moreover, whatever evil he sends upon me in this troubled life, he will turn to my good, for he is able to do it, being almighty God, and is determined to do it, being a faithful father. As pilgrims, we can be confident that whatever our circumstances, we are watched over day and night by a sovereign protector. We started out in the tents of Kedar, and we've seen Jerusalem from the distance. Then in Psalm 122, we finally arrive there, and we find this pilgrim treasuring God's presence and committed to the prosperity of God's city. Verse 1, he says, I rejoiced with those who said to me, 
Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. Notice that the pilgrim doesn't love Jerusalem for its own sake. He loves it because the Lord is there. He's glad his feet are within Jerusalem's gates because the Lord's presence is within its gates in the temple. Now, it's quite true that the Lord has actually been with this pilgrim all along. The Lord has been watching over him and shading him all the way from Kedar or wherever it was he came from. And the Lord was with him even before he started out from Kedar. But the joy here comes from the experience of God's presence. Not just knowing God is working on his behalf, but coming close to God. And as these verses go on to describe Jerusalem, they're really describing what it's like to be in God's presence. His presence is a place of safe refuge. It's a city after all. Verse 3 reminds us of that. And it's a place of fellowship, both with God and with his people. Verse 4 reminds us that all the tribes met in Jerusalem for the three big annual festivals. And so it was also a place of praise. That's in verse 4 too. The reason the tribes all met there was to praise the name of the Lord. That's what he had commanded them to do. It says, according to the statute given to Israel. The book of Deuteronomy had set that out. So one writer says, every time they came together, it was an act of loyalty. An act of loyalty to God. They were saying, yes, we live in various different places. We spend our days working and raising families and doing everyday things that people do. But we also set aside time and as an act of loyalty to our God, we join with the rest of his people in his presence and we praise him together. Meshech and Kedar can do what they want. We will go and praise the name of the Lord. And Jerusalem was also a place of justice. Verse 5 says, There the thrones for judgment stand, the thrones of the house of David. Thrones for judgment doesn't mean that those on the thrones only ever condemned people. It means they made judgments in order to give justice to people. Those who went to Jerusalem saw it as a place where they would receive justice rather than lies and deceit and mistreatment. Earlier we talked about shalom, peace. And there can be no true shalom without justice. Ignoring sin and rebellion and injustice does not create shalom. It creates more lies and deceit. Things get covered up and brushed over. Peace without justice is no peace at all. It's an illusion of peace. But God's presence is a place where the truth is told and there is true justice and true shalom. 
All of those things are true about God's presence. But the historical city of Jerusalem was not always a place of safe refuge or justice or shalom. It ought to have been, and at times it came close to it, especially under the reign of King David. But even then, it was only a token of a greater city, a city where all of this would be fully realized. So in verses 6 to 9, we find our pilgrim saying, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray that she will be what she is called to be. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. But if we fast forward to the New Testament, we are told this about the Son of God. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. The time of God's coming was Jesus' coming. They rejected the one who could bring them shalom. And his words here came true. Jerusalem was reduced to rubble about 35 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. When the Bible speaks about a city where God is present, a place of peace and security and justice and praise, when it gives us that picture, it's calling us ultimately to look for a new Jerusalem to find the reality of that picture. The book of Revelation describes that new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Revelation tells us that one day God will provide the city that we could never build for ourselves. But what about the meantime? Is there nothing that comes close? Well, believe it or not, the Bible says that the church comes close. Not the building where the church meets, but the body of people who make up the church. The true house of the Lord is made up of living stones like you and me. And as we come together to praise the name of the Lord, we are the closest thing on earth to the new Jerusalem that will one day come down from heaven. Yes, it's true. God is with us in the tents of Aldridge or Walsall or wherever you live. Yes, he's with us every step of our pilgrimage. But he's with us in a special way when we come together as a body. That's why the book of Hebrews tells us not to give up meeting together. That's not because we lose brownie points if we stay at home. It's because we miss out when we don't meet together. It doesn't matter if we meet in a school or a mud hut. When God's people meet together to praise his name, 
he is with us in a special way. And he ministers to us in a special way. Now, it's true that as individuals, we can come here with a wrong spirit, with a wrong attitude, and we can go home unmoved and unchanged. But even when we come like that, sometimes God will break through. Maybe you've had that experience. Maybe you've come here from time to time annoyed or disinterested, and God has changed you. But haven't you also had the experience of coming here expectantly, having prepared your heart? And isn't it true that in those situations, almost without fail, God ministered to you? Benjamin Warfield said, No man or woman can fail to meet God in the sanctuary if he takes God there with him. In other words, as we come looking to God as our help and determined to give him his rightful place, he will fill us with joy in his presence. Despite the flaws of the preacher or whoever else is taking part, Until Christ returns and the new Jerusalem appears, we are the city of God. We're still pilgrims. We're still on our way to that future city. But we can have a foretaste of that city as we give ourselves to serve and build and love the church of Jesus Christ. Or as verse 9 puts it, as we seek its prosperity. God has called us together to praise his name. And we're going to close by doing that as we sing, Tell out, my soul, the greatness of the Lord.